welcome to Lake Bat. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming to take you away. Um. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Laid Back. Huh? <laughs> okay, if you guys haven't seen Shorzy, this is our. We are in no way sponsored by Hulu or uh, what? What was what was the name of the streaming service? It's it was originally aired on. Oh, um, Crave. Crave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're not sponsored by them at all, but if they wanted to sponsor us, we would be very okay with that. Uh, but, but go watch Shorzy. It is, uh, adult content, even though it, it is not exactly mature humor. Um, and I am Gabe. I'm WCT level three certified <laughs> in wine. And my name is, I'm an administrator for a wine and spirits educated body. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I'll, this I'll, might be the wildest one we've done yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, this is Laid Back Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. And, and Shorzy, apparently. And Shorzy, as we, you know, actively solicit uh, a little bit of patronage. And I'm Michael, by the way. I uh, did stuff with wine at a certain point. So yeah, there's that. <laughs> Great qualifications. Yeah. Yeah. I did stuff with wine. And uh, today we are going to be talking about wine yet again, and specifically in Chile. Yes. Now, if you've never had a Chilean wine, you've got to try it. And so we're just going to be talking today about, you know, the things that make the region unique. Now, Chile, if you are not familiar, is a long country on the western edge of South America, bordering Argentina, Bolivia, and Peru. Kind of looks like the sharp end of a knife on that, uh, on that southern half of South America. Its capital is Santiago, nestled in a valley between 6,000 miles of Chilean coast and the Andes Mountains. This allows for just a fantastic variety of climate that we're going to be getting into a little bit later, as well as the history and uh, just a basic overview of the area. Yes. In our next episode, we're going to be getting more specific about the regions, but we think that this would be a great starting point for any of you who are curious or who have never had a Chilean wine. Yeah, I think uh, splitting it into two is probably the best way to approach Chile because there's a lot of regions and you kind of have to have a primer to understand why the regions function the way that they do and why they grow the grapes that they do. So and also hopefully this will allow us to put out a few shorter episodes because we've put out quite a few long ones recently. So yeah, and we don't think that any of you have an hour long drive to your work to uh, to do with this unless you're but maybe just... to listen to us, you know, debate about IPAs and lagers. 100%. Listen to us while you're cooking and get into the energy. <laughs> I don't know if that's the energy you want while you're cooking. Yeah, I know that was that was a very unique episode. So if you joined us for the last episode, you know, just thank you. Um, and sorry. Uh, <laughs> truly deeply sorry in any case though today we're not going to be doing hot takes but we are going to be talking about a hot region (laughs) so getting right on into it chile did not always have a wine industry so when did chile first find itself growing wine grapes well we have the nice little specter of colonialism to thank for that one. Wow, it keeps on showing up. It's almost like we're being haunted. <laughs> like a ghost. Yeah. A poltergeist. It's it's terrible. It's just like, so what brought uh, wine into this region in all of Europe? War. What, what brought it to the rest of the areas? Colonialism. And war. And war. Sometimes. 
sometimes it wasn't even a war is more of just kind of like a, a genocide yeah that's yeah. the one yeah uh, but on the happier end of the outcome it did also introduce uh wine grapes so in the 16th century we had the conquistadors yes who brought over missionaries and the missionaries immediately started trying to grow wine yep they brought over some grape vines with them originally in mexico that was kind of the starting place for plantings in north america at least to our current knowledge. And that would have been, ironically enough, the missionary grape. Hello, dear listener. Gabe from the Editor's Bay here with a quick editor's note. So the grape is actually called the mission grape, not the missionary grape. My apologies. I got that wrong in my notes. I wrote it down as missionary. So I said it wrong in the episode. Anyway, back to the episode. Uh, however, in Chile, it is now referred to as pice. It is still planted in the country. Or, well, it might be that uh, an ancestor of pice is what was originally brought over. I did read that. But regardless, there's continuity, at least, between the missionary grape and pice. Do we not have uh, any evidence in order to do any sort of DNA testing in order to figure it out? Or uh, That's a good question. I, I don't know. Based off of what I read, um, I would assume... Probably, but I guess that depends on if there's funding for the research or not. But regardless, started in Mexico, the Pice plantings, or missionary plantings, excuse me, started in Mexico. They made their way to Peru. Now, if you remember our kind of history of wine series, you might remember on the episode where we talked about South America, or well, the Americas in general, Peru was a really big hub of wine production during this period of time. It's not as much anymore for reasons we'll get into here in a second, but the wine grapes that were brought to Chile by the missionaries were actually, yes, originally from Mexico, but they were brought mainly from Peru. Mm. And again, that would have been in the 16th century. So we have it traveling down south, as far south as south goes. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, also with the missionary grapes, though, we do know that at least by the late 16th century, they were growing muscat, a grape called Torontel. I don't really know anything about that grape. Uh, another grape called Albilo and Molar. Again, I couldn't really find much on these grapes either, but we do know that they were there. Yeah, I believe that I've actually had a Torontel. Did you have Torontel or Torontes? Oh, it was Torontes. Mm -hmm. This was years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so don't confuse those two. Torontes is typically going to be Argentinian. Torontel. I, I don't know if Torontel is still around or not. I don't yeah. know if that's an extinct variety or not. I would imagine, though, that it was somehow related in some way because the, the words. The etymology so... would make sense, yeah. 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 So maybe that's another one of those ancestral mm -hmm. grape varietals. It's interesting because Chile started growing all of this wine, but unfortunately, the conquistadors, they had other ideas about, you know, who should be benefiting from wine export. Well, you know, when you're the invading body, let's say, in this case, Spain, and you're sending over your wines to sell to the Chileans, you don't really want a lot of competition. And if the Chileans are growing a bunch of their own grapes to make into wine and vinifying it, that cuts into your profits, right? So in 1641, we have a ban actually coming from Spain on the exporting of Chilean wine to Spain, there had already been actually a limitation legally on what Chilean producers were allowed to grow, quote unquote, to also try and not cut into the profits. But this ban was just another step in that 
process to oh really try and protect these Spanish markets. Well, and it's really this was before we had any sort of preservation on vessels. If you listen to our Madeira episode, we go into what happens to wine when it's traveling long distances and yeah. hot hulls. Yeah. It's it's not great. So And the, that was just from Portugal to yeah. Britain. Yeah, exactly. Imagine going halfway across the world in 1641. Yeah, exactly. So it's like they were trying to sell them a, a bag of bad goods, and yeah. they were trying to legally enforce it. But, you know, that's what happens with, you know, certain overlords. They they get this, you know, strange fetish for control. And we do know, at least to the Chilean palate at the time, they were producing actually pretty good wine. Mm -hmm. And they were like... Uh, sorry, we don't want your spoiled wine. We're just yeah. going to continue to make our own. So they actually just kind of ignored both of these <laughs> edicts. Um, you but, shall not create wine of your own. You must have our spoiled stuff. Exactly. Um, no, I'm going to have to, I'm going to say no um, I, <laughs> without room to negotiate. That's going to be no deal for me. <laughs> so then we had what you could, I guess, kind of say is that what really cemented Chile as a wine producing country. And that is when this ban happened. Peru actually listened to this ban. This is part of what kind of led to the ruination of the wine industry to this day in Peru. Peru's never really recovered wow. to what they used to produce back in the day. So when you put a ban like this in effect, that doesn't stop the grapes from growing, right? That have already been planted. So they had a glut of wine grapes. So what they did in Peru, and they also did this in Chile, the people that did actually listen to this order, is they made the grapes into a kind of brandy that's called pisco here. And it's still produced uh, in Chile and Peru. It's produced in a lot of places in South America to this day. Um, it was also used for Aguadente. But the switch over to this is what really did Peru's wine industry in. They never really were able to get back into producing wine. They lost a lot of the vinification knowledge as well. But because Chile mostly ignored this regulation, they started exporting their wines to Peru. That's kind of what led them to actually have a wine industry. Interesting. So it really was just neighbors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the wherewithal to ignore the king of Spain. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Peru. Yeah. I will yeah. never financially recover from this. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's more about South America that I'm not going to get into here, but you know. Um, yeah. Anyway. anyway. So, uh, so in 1851, fast forwarding 200 years, producers in the region became very interested in French wines, particularly French wines from Bordeaux. And we actually had a bunch of vines brought from Bordeaux. Now, the signature grape of Chile is Carmenere. Mm -hmm. Carmenere is what's commonly referred to a lot as the lost grape of Bordeaux. The plantings are very, very, very small in Bordeaux now. It's not really used in a lot of Bordeaux wines. It's still allowed legally, but no one really seems to be growing it. It's actually thought that Chile might have saved Carmenere from going extinct because oh, these wow. vines were brought over, because it did fall out of favor in Bordeaux. Something interesting about the Carmenere that was brought over is it was actually thought to have been Merlot. Oh, wow. Until 1994. So they spent 100 years growing this stuff just thinking it was Merlot. And then they did genetic profiling on it and found out, oh, this is actually Carmenere. 
Wow. Which, How do you confuse those two? Well, okay. Here's here's a little bit of a, a side rant. I actually just heard someone compare Merlot and Carmenere, and I read it a couple times in some of the research I was doing. I get why people might make the comparison, because Carmenere tends to be like medium-bodied, very fruity, but some people will take issue with me saying this. When I say Carmenere has a green note, I don't mean that underripe green note, and I don't even necessarily mean bell pepper. It can be that in particularly lower quality Carmenere's, mm-hmm. but there's a kind of um, green, stemmy, almost brambly, like a blackberry bush kind of yeah, thing with Carmenere 100%. that I just don't really know how you would call that as Merlot because it tends to be pretty dominant in Carmenere, and it's at least in the ones that I've had. Spicy. Yeah, which Merlot can be spicy as well, and I guess maybe people just chalked it up to the terroir. I didn't really yeah, look into it Yeah, but it's spicy in a more mineral way. Yeah, or um, a woody way. I don't really know how to fully describe it. But regardless, it was thought to have been Merlot. I mean, if someone gives you a vine and tells you it's Merlot, you're probably just going to assume it's Merlot. Yeah, right? especially if you're sitting there wanting to be educated by who you think are experienced winemakers. In yeah. the case of you know the Chilean winemakers petitioning from Bordeaux. But regardless, um, we found out it's Carmenere. It is now the country's signature grape. It's not grown in all the regions, but it's grown in the warmer ones. It's more of a warm climate grape. So on top of bringing these Bordeaux vines over, we also had a lot of the winemaking knowledge from Bordeaux winemakers was shared with the people from Chile that were coming over. If you are familiar with the Erzuris family, they have a brand called Max that has some very incredible wines for a very affordable price. That family, one of the Dons, went over to Bordeaux himself. He was a very big fixture in the Chilean wine industry historically. He learned a lot about Bordeaux winemaking. So in Chile, there is a lot of experimentation, but it was very influenced early on and still is to this day by Bordeaux-style wine. So very structured, very complex, very rich. There's a lot of blending that goes on. So that kind of covers how we got here to this day. So where are we today? Well, we have Chile as the seventh largest wine producing country in general, and it is the fifth largest wine exporter out of wine producing countries. So this is a very big industry and it's really made a name for itself. Well, and it's crazy because a lot of times people will talk about Spanish wine or they'll talk about stuff that comes out of France. I don't hear a lot of conversation surrounding Chilean wine just when I'm out and about. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things. A, there's the um, propensity toward old world wines in the wine industry that stems from a lot of varying factors, some of them uh, more problematic than others. And a lot of those communities will end up being a little bit more clustered together. Exactly. They are talking about it. because But they also tend to be the higher ups. Yeah. Or the people, they tend to be the people, I guess, that control more of the marketing. We'll, we'll say that. It's going to be the people who have the money that are talking about it, and they're always yeah. going to be the ones talking about the more prestigious regions. Although, that being said, there is, uh, so the Rothschilds family from Bordeaux actually do heavy investment in some wineries in Chile. There's a lot of international investment in Chile that has helped their reputation, but again, there's just this very Eurocentric view a lot of times in the wine industry. 
to that point, it just goes to show you, like, this is a quality region. It's yeah. underrated. People are investing in this place because it's producing amazing stuff. There is a little bit of a caveat to what you just said, though, and it's that Chilean wine tends to, at least for their exports, tends to kind of come in two varieties, I guess, if you will. There's very affordable price point wines, so wines in that, like, under 10 to $20 range, and then like very expensive, high quality wines. They don't have a lot of mid-level wines in mm. the export market right now, which has kind of been a challenge for them because there are some people that don't want these very early drinking style Cabernet Sauvignons, Merlots, uh, Sauvignon Blancs. We'll get into the grapes here in a second, but um, you know, they might not want those earlier drinking, less complex styles that are more affordable but they also can't afford 80 dollars bottles of wine yeah for a dinner you know well that's that's interesting because at that point it's literally just because they don't have wines within that economic niche mm -hmm. yeah that it ends up making it to where you can't onboard people yeah because a person who spends and that's also a marketing problem right yeah a person who spends 40 dollars on a wine and has good experience is more likely to go after the more expensive product from the same producer yeah now that being said Part of the reason why I love Chile's wines so much is those affordable wines are normally very good quality for the price that you pay for them. Another reason why the wine industry in Chile is kind of just in the past decade or so really starting to pick up steam is a lot of the more advanced winemaking techniques that have come into the country were more brought in in like the 80s and 90s. So it took a while for the quality reputation of Chile to really ramp up, which is what we're kind of coming into now. So what are some of the factors? Because now we're talking about, you know, all these different types of wine. We have early drinking style. We have stuff that you can age. What are we actually looking at as far as the climate and the terroir of, you know, this massive region, which is just, it is one of the most oddly shaped countries I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. It's very long and very narrow. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's basically like they were just trying to tell Argentina, no, you're not allowed to have two coasts. <laughs> like, yeah. Just like, so we're just going to make this one into a country. That's kind of what it looks like. That kind of makes it hard to talk about the climate in generalities. And mm -hmm. that's because when you have that much latitude in your country, you know, that's basically going across a lot of the bands that wine grows in. Mm -hmm. And that variation from north to south causes a lot of different microclimates across the country that make it better suited for different kinds of grapes. But that all being said, in general, we have a warm Mediterranean climate. So Mediterranean means essentially not a lot of rainfall during the year, very hot and typically long summers. Yeah. Now, that means that irrigation is a very big thing in chile we would not have wine in chile if it were not for irrigation a lot of it comes from snowmelt from the andes and speaking of the andes something to know about chile uh kind of the big physical defining factor of the country is there are two mountain ranges in chile there's a coastal mountain range and then there's the andes mountains that border argentina these two basically divvy up the land into various subclimates, if you will, mm -hmm. that really affect what grows where. Yeah. We also have the Humboldt Current coming up from the Antarctic. 
that was going to blow up on these more coastal areas and in certain valleys that are in that coastal mountain range that means that that wind can also be funneled a little bit further inland to cool off growing sites something to note about the country is it has been able to remain phylloxera free because there's a desert to the north and phylloxera root louse cannot live in sandy soils so phylloxera never got to chile partially because of all these mitigating physical factors so at that point you don't even really need the grafting for rootstock we still need to do a full episode on phylloxera yeah we do so since we do have this divided up by our coastal mountains and then the andes mountains it allows us to have coastal plains we have the coastal slopes we have the central plains and then we have the foothills Mm -hmm. um what sort of other factors are being created with this because we're having you know snow melt as well as a lot of sunlight coming over the andes mountains so i'm sure that we're getting some of those breezes coming in in order to combat Mm -hmm. the uh, humboldt currents what sort of thing is that doing in general to the uh the actual temperatures inside of the vineyards as well as the humidity so that that's kind of a hard question to answer in general but uh if we're going to talk about the andes in particular and the coastal mountain ranges if you're planting kind of in the foothills area or if you're planting along slopes with altitude you're going to get a higher what's called diurnal range now a diurnal range is the difference between your average day and night temperatures So the larger that diurnal range is, the cooler it's going to be at night, the higher or hotter, excuse me, it's going to be during the day. And that's really good for grape growing because it slows down the grapes from ripening too fast at night. But because it's so hot and sunny during the day, it allows them to fully ripen by the time harvest comes around. But because that process doesn't happen too quick, it allows them to really get a richness and a fullness in their flavor profile that might not happen if you don't have that diurnal range. In the more flat areas, you're not really going to get that, obviously, because they're not as affected by the mountains themselves, unless maybe you have, like you said, a valley where there's ocean breezes being funneled in through the coastal mountain range. Something else to note about the terroir of Chile is it has allowed for some very old vines to stay intact, particularly some Carignan vines. Oh, yeah, especially Um, since they... they, Because they didn't have phylloxera, so they didn't have to worry. Yeah, exactly. Um, So old vines from Chile are, I wouldn't say they're common per se, but they're a draw to a lot of wine drinkers to the country. Like when, when people say old, old vine Zinfandel, they got nothing on what these guys are doing in chile yeah to go back for a second to your uh, dividing up of the country so the coastal will sometimes be costa on a wine label Mm -hmm. the valley between these two mountain ranges might be on the label as entre cordilleras and then you might see andes for wines that were grown more towards the andes foothills part of the country these might show up on your wine labels just wanted to throw that in. oh yeah no that's fantastic knowledge to know especially since part of our whole point in doing all of this is just so that you can walk confidently into a wine shop ask questions very humbly of the attendant but Mm -hmm. be able to actually read a label yeah so going back to the rainfall and the water availability of chile we have because of how dry it is and because irrigation is necessary, 
drip irrigation has become very popular. Mm. It is a very expensive way of doing irrigation, at least in terms of the startup costs to install yeah. the drip. This um, was also the manufacturing uh, type of irrigation that was done in the vineyard I worked in. Yes. It's expensive to do, but, well, A, it saves a lot of water for yeah. irrigation. B, it's actually a lot better for, because what they used to do, actually, is they carved out these canals and they would just flood the vineyards with the water that was in the canals and let that seep in deep into the soil and it would kind of keep the grapes going throughout the summer. That had a tendency to overwater the grapes, and that, as we've talked about before, kind of leads to typically a bit more of a watery wine. But we do now have the strip irrigation, better irrigation systems in general, except for, you know, maybe your very mass market producers. That has allowed for organic, sustainable, and biodynamic farming yeah. to become very prevalent in the country. Actually, about 75 to 80% of exports are at least sustainably farmed in the country. Just to uh, briefly describe to you what drip irrigation looks like, you essentially oh, yeah, have... probably a good, good thing to describe. You have devices that are meant to deliver the water, and they are essentially what looks like a bunch of hoses that go right underneath the vines themselves and have small openings that have regulators on them at the foot of each one of the vines. This allows for the vineyard tenders and the, the vineyard workers to control exactly how much water that they're getting. And because it's so close to the ground, you don't have the same issue that you would with older methods where just tons of it is evaporating, a bunch of it's going away, especially in a drier climate. It is essential because you're looking at a significant amount of water being taken just from evaporation from the delivery system to the ground. Yeah. So it's, it's a fantastic way of doing things. It's very good for sustainability, very good for uh, for just reducing environmental waste in general. Yeah. And it helps preserve water for, you know, better uses than just flooding a vineyard. Yeah. One more thing on the climate, and then we'll move on to our grapes. So because of all the factors that we've talked about for this climate in Chile, vintage variation is normally not a very big issue. However, we do have one complicating factor for the rainfall aspect. And that is the El Nino and La Nina years. El Nino years are years when they just get an unexpected huge amount of rainfall for their average rainfall. And that can be, again, diluting your grapes, not necessarily what they want. We also have La Nina years, and that's years where the drought risk is really high. So you have the opposite problem of you might not even have irrigation to rely on necessarily. You might have to go full dry farming, which is a little bit risky as well. Just know that if you do hear someone talk about this came from an El Nino or a La Nina year, that's what they're referring to. So grapes. And this is really cool. So we just finished talking about in general, these different climates. And we were saying, you know, you can have it really hot, really cool, fantastic diurnal range in some of these areas so that you can have a nice long ripening season. That allows for a lot of our grapes to have several different expressions mm -hmm. throughout the region, which is really unique, especially for a place that's only 100 miles wide. Yes. Uh, yeah. so, so let's get into it with some of the whites. Yeah. So we have Chardonnay to start off with. Chardonnay, as we've said before on the podcast, is kind of the chameleon grape of white wines. It can be done in so many different styles because 
you know, on its own, it's, I wouldn't say it's a neutral, it's not a neutral grape. Like Pinot Grigio would be a better example of like a neutral grape. Pinot Grigio would probably be, huh? As we take this brief moment, uh, can somebody please fund us so I can buy some WD-40 for, for game? <laughs> because this chair is just having... It's been giving us some trouble in recording recently. Yes. Uh, so Pinot Grigio, I guess, maybe would probably be a better example of a truly neutral grape. But Chardonnay on its own, it has fruit, it has acidity, but that can be played around a lot. Particularly the temperature of the climate that it's grown in and the soil type. So this leads to, because Chile has so many microclimates, a huge range of styles that you can get out of Chardonnay. Typically, you're going to be having your fuller styles, your more robust, fruity styles, maybe some oak styles. Um, that's obviously going to be played around with depending on the producer. Don't necessarily think like California oak Chardonnay probably coming out of Chile. California is a little bit more on that spectrum than chile tends to be at least in the wines that i have tried the chardonnays that i have tried but you do have that again warmer richer style in the warmer sites and in the cooler sites you're going to be getting your higher acid more um i don't want to say lean but uh more austere more kind of zippy citrus forward expressions of chardonnay which i personally really like a lot yeah great for summer wine in particular yeah, I mean, and you have to remember, these guys were being taught by people from the old world. They're mm-hmm. being taught by people from Bordeaux. So they're yeah. not going to have, uh, they're not aiming for things. They're not going for America. bombastic. Yeah. yeah. They're not going for more of that California profile. They're, yeah. they're trying to do the more yeah. austere. They're trying to do the things that are mm-hmm. more expressed and at least in for. the cooler sites. Yeah. 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 The, or, but also, even when they're fuller and richer, they're not. Going as far as California. They're probably not going to be called buttercream, is what we're trying to say. Yeah, that's exactly what, yeah, <laughs> yeah. butter knife, buttercream, yeah. butter. But we also... Those are all wines. Yeah, they are wines. No, I just... They, they qualify, technically. <laughs> it's it's just that their actual name have butter. It, something about the visualization of drinking butter just doesn't appeal to me. Hello, kids, I'm Paula Dean. <laughs> I'm here to introduce you to my wine recipe. All you gotta do is mix a little bit of vodka with your softened butter. That's it. Put it in the microwave, mix with water, pour it on some lobster. Anyway. Anyway. So then we move on to Sauvignon Blanc. Now, the Sauvignon Blanc is going to be... The best way that I can describe it from the ones that I've had is if you've had... New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, it's not quite that fruit forward in a lot of the places where it's grown, but it's not as austere as Loire Valley either. The Sauvignon Blanc from Chile does tend to be very fruity. I would say in general, it's not quite as like lemongrassy herbaceous as New Zealand Sauvignon Mm. Blancs tend to be, and they don't necessarily have that like cat pea boxwood thing as much either. They tend to be more on the green vegetal scale of like asparagus, that kind of thing. I actually, um, so a more mellow vegetal. Um, I don't know if mellow is the right word because I mean asparagus is a pretty strong. No. Oh, I I mean mellow compared to lemongrass or uh, yeah. boxwood. Maybe uh, not as high toned is how I would say it. Yeah, yeah. Um, a little bit more earthy, but also still a lot of abundant fruit 
mm-hmm. kind of similar to New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Are we still so that's like, why I say it's kind of a cross between the two. Grapefruit, kiwi, mm-hmm. yeah. sort of thing. Literally probably the best Sauvignon Blanc I have ever had in my life came from Chile. It came from a producer called Leda. And we'll go over this in the next episode, but there is a region called the Leda Valley. And it tasted like grapefruit, asparagus, and flowers. And it was so strong, but it was so concentrated and Mm. rich and just like incredible. It's not a wine for everyone. I will admit that. But oh my gosh, it was amazing. So whereas... You know, New Zealand is that super strong, high key, high energy, out in the sun type of flavor. And then the Loire Valley is sitting there keeping its secrets with a mm-hmm. little bit more of those floral notes. Very mineral driven. Yeah. You have this really apparently rich, earthier version mm-hmm. coming out of Chile. That's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. I have never had a Chilean Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, dude, if I can get that Leda for you, it's very hard to find because Leda is a very small producer. But I, And listener, if you find a bottle, please pick it up and try it. It's not cheap either, but it's very good. Anyway, but that kind of wraps up the whites primarily. Um, there are some other whites in the country grown that are being experimented with, but they're not really what they're known for. So, Moving on to our reds, we have Carmenere, as we mentioned before. That is going to be, again, the signature grape of the country. I love Carmenere so much. <laughs> Couldn't be because you're drinking it, are you? I mean, partially, <laughs> but I also just love Carmenere in general. I will never say no to a Carmenere. As I mentioned earlier, I've seen it compared to Merlot a lot. I just don't really think it quite fits that. Tannin structure-wise... It's a little bit higher than Merlot is going to be, but I get why people make the comparison because typically, at least for a fully ripe Carmenere, it is very velvety. It's very soft and, and smooth tannins, kind of like a Merlot. The body tends to be more medium, not quite full body. But again, that's going to depend very heavily on where it was grown and the alcohol content and things like that and the winemaking techniques used. See, for me... Comparing it to Merlot, I find Carmenere to be a much more visceral wine. It's it's brambly, it's spicy, it's it's a little bit more uh, rustic, I think is yeah. probably the term a lot of people would use to in, describe it. In point of fact, if I had to say, it's, it's like if you were to enjoy liquid rust in a way. It's... See that that's more well, I guess Pinotage would probably be tar more than rust. Yeah. Yeah, I could see I could see rust. That probably sounds off putting, but we mean it in a complimentary way, we promise. We really do. Well, uh, not I'm not saying go out and lick rust, please, by all means, do not do that. Yeah, don't ever. do that. <laughs> um but just kind of that um more light, um it's layered, it's strong, but it's not necessarily just sitting there with tons and tons of depth and richness, despite its concentration being absolutely lovely yeah you know as i said before carmenere is not grown in every region it's typically going to be relegated to the more warm sites because it is a warm climate grape and it needs a lot of sun and warmth to fully ripen then we have cabernet sauvignon now i've had so much cabernet sauvignon from chile oh it's funny it's so carmenere is the signature grape of chile i believe that cabernet sauvignon is the most sold grape out of chile It is considered to be the most widely planted grape in the country. I did see one source say that Pice is the most widely planted grape in the country. I don't know if that's actually true or not. I would assume, considering everyone else has Cabernet Sauvignon, it's probably Cabernet Sauvignon. But I didn't want to throw that in there. Either way, 
it's usually a little bit more again on that bordeaux refined yeah. style it's going to be a little bit richer than bordeaux just because the climate's warmer and it's able to get a little bit riper than it is going to be in bordeaux but don't think like australia or california cabernet sauvignon this does have a little bit more refinement a little bit more berry notes than full just like jammy fruit being thrown mm -hmm. at you those more delicate herbal notes can come through in my experience and this is something i've i've read online as well is that mint is kind yeah. of the big terroir giveaway for chilean cabernet sauvignon uh, whereas, you know, bell pepper in California and then black currant in Bordeaux and black currant also tends to show up in Californians as well. But everyone says bell pepper for California. But anyway, it depends rant. on the depends on the specific producer. And exactly. Um, but here, think mint. If someone hands you a Cabernet Sauvignon, it's like, where is it from? If you smell mint in there, Chile is a very safe bet. Now, that does tend to be the more quality Cabernet Sauvignons from Chile, not necessarily the high volume producers, but that is something to yeah. take note of. And we also have Merlot. Not really much to say about Merlot that you probably don't already know. There's nothing really special about it here that I know of. Merlot is just a really hearty grape. It's a hearty grape, and it's great for blending. And they do do a lot of Bordeaux blends in Chile, obviously, that they learn from Bordeaux winemakers, right? So Merlot is grown here. You can find it as a varietal wine, but again, it's probably going to be a, a blending grape as well. We also have Pinot Noir, Michael's favorite. It now, is. Now, um, Pinot Noir from Chile is very interesting because it it's fruity and easy drinking, usually. Um, and it's probably going to be coming from your cooler sites. But it's also a lot more... Um, I don't say this to disparage New Zealand Pinot Noirs, but I would say it's a little bit more sophisticated mm -hmm. in Chile than it is from New Zealand. That's just my own personal drinking experience. Yeah, I would say that there's a little bit more balance and, and complexity. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's not going to be as earth-driven as uh, Burgundy. Yeah, no. Yeah. Well, and also with New Zealand, you, you do have some of that more... The herbaceousness can feel a little waxy at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're not going to get any of that from this place. And I feel like that waxiness... And again, this is not a disparaging comment because I, I actually really enjoy that experience... Uh, but it can mask some other flavors. It can make them feel a little, not diluted, but just uh, like there's a barrier. Yeah. You're not going to have that with Chilean Pinot Noir. It's going no. to allow itself to be fully everything. And so I think that it also gives the winemakers an opportunity to be more sophisticated when they're developing these. Yeah, agreed. So then we have Pice, and that's going to be, again, that grape that came from the Mission Grape. It's going to be fruity. Sometimes it can be a little bit herbal. I've read that it can also be a little bit meaty. I personally have not had pice, but it is still widely grown in the country. It's kind of considered a cultural heritage for the wine industry there for obvious reasons. Syrah is growing in its popularity. There's still a lot of experimentation with where it's grown best and what the best style is, but you can expect something probably akin to what you would find in the Southern Rhone if the Southern Rhone didn't do as many blends. But the climate is very similar in terms of like more Mediterranean climate. Now, that means it's going to be a refined style, but maybe not quite as refined as, say, like your northern Rome, because that's also going to be a little bit cooler. But Syrah can also be grown in cooler areas here. 
again, it's kind of hard to talk in generalities about Chilean wine, but in general, think a refined style. So probably kind of meaty, peppery, but also some bountiful fruit going on. And because of the climate being a little bit warmer than like the Rhone Valley, the tannins are going to be a little bit higher in these Syrahs because there's just more, you know, sunlight and warmth available to get them to that full ripeness. And that does help a lot with aging potential. And that is something that's being explored with Syrah that's being grown here. What's the availability like on that one? Because I'm not sure if I've ever had a Chilean Syrah. I've I've never seen one stateside. I don't yeah. know if they're really exporting it yet. That's unfortunate because I would love to see the expression of that. I love a good Syrah. I think that the weight and the punch of it is always something fun to explore. And I think from that region in particular, it would be very interesting. Yeah. So uh, that kind of wraps up everything that we have to say, or at least I have to say about the overview. And then we'll see you guys next time to actually dive into all the little nooks and crannies of the actual physical regions. Yeah, hopefully uh, it'll allow you to kind of know what to expect when you're walking in. If anything catches your fancy to be able to go into a store and ask for it specifically, which is mm -hmm. always very nice for your wine salesman. Yes. And your, your wine shop attendant. Indeed. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us as we did this overview of Chile. If you would, please go ahead, like, share, and follow. Especially share. It is the best thing that you can do in order to support our podcast uh, and allow us to continue doing this. We love doing it. And as always, thank you very much. I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. And this has been Laidback Lush. Cheers. Cheers.